turn in your Bibles to Luke 24, Luke chapter 24. You'll need a Bible to follow along. These guys have some. They're going to make their way to the back. Get their attention. Get a Bible. It's marked for you at Luke 24. Keep the Bible. It's our gift to you. Bring it back each Lord's Day as we look at God's Word together. Luke 24. At Christmas, we celebrate the coming of God to earth by means of a miraculous conception and birth. Those events are recorded at the very beginning of what we call the New Testament, and in its very first book, chapter 1 of Matthew, but also at the beginning of the book to which I've asked you to look, the book of Luke, where the Christmas story covers chapters 1 and 2. But I've asked you to turn to the very last chapter of Luke, Because here we have Jesus at the end of his mission on earth explaining that it had all been in its entirety from beginning to end predicted thousands of years before. In Luke 24, the one who was conceived in and delivered by a virgin in the miraculous coming of God himself as man, he's now completed all that he came to do. He's lived a perfect life of righteousness. He died to pay for the sins of those who will believe in him. And he's raised from the dead, now ready to ascend back to heaven from which he came. But between his resurrection and his ascension, he showed himself alive to people for nearly six weeks. The book of Acts says this, after his suffering, he showed himself And gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared over a period of 40 days. Now two of those to whom he showed himself alive after the resurrection are found in Luke chapter 24. These two men had become followers of Jesus while he ministered and taught. But at this point they're distraught because they had heard the news that he had been crucified. And now Jesus himself comes alongside them and begins to explain what has happened. Verse 25 of Luke 24. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, in going back to Moses and the prophets, Jesus is citing predictions about himself, some of them thousands of years before. And he had lots of material to cite because the first part of the Bible contains many prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. In his book, The Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, J. Barton Barton Payne listed some 574 direct prophecies and allusions to the coming Messiah. Now, some of these were pictures that were fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus. For example, the entire system of sacrifices of animals for sin that you see in the first part of the Bible, that was a picture pointing to what the New Testament calls, quote, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Dr. Walter Kaiser, in his book, The Messiah in the Old Testament, deals in detail with 65 direct predictions of Jesus' first and second comings in the Old Testament. So there's much to cite 
that was predicted hundreds and even thousands of years before. But this morning, I'm going to show you just a sampling of those predictions as we're reminded that Christmas is indeed completely about Christ. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you that we're here. We thank you for why we're here. As we celebrate and remember especially the coming of God to earth, we thank you for the unique God-man. One person with two natures, fully God, fully human, for our good and your glory. So, Lord, we now quiet our hearts and we train our minds to remember this. Help us as we do. And help each of us to remember, help some to see for the first time, the significance of what we celebrate in Christmas. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. And we have an outline for you on the back of your program. So if you'll turn to the back of that, you'll see what this passage tells us with regard to Christ's coming. The first is this, the Bible predicted Christ's coming. When Jesus tells these two men about the Bible's predictions about himself, the passage says he did this in verse 27, beginning with Moses and the prophets. Now, when it says Moses and the prophets, it's using terms that were commonly used to identify sections that comprise the entire Old Testament, Moses and the prophets. There are actually three sections of the Old Testament, and Jesus cites the third down in verse 44. If you look down in verse 44, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now, contrary to how some have misunderstood this passage, it's not saying that Jesus is claiming that every passage of the Old Testament is about him. But rather that every one of the three sections of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, all of those have predictions and information about him. And there are 39 books in the Old Testament, as many of you know, and Moses wrote the first five. They're called the law, or in Hebrew, the Torah. And then there's another section of the Old Testament called the Prophets, and then this third called the Psalms, or as we'll see in a bit, the, the Writings. So if you have a, a Bible that is just containing the Old Testament, as Judaism has today, you have a, a Hebrew Bible. And the, it's a Hebrew Bible because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. So I have this uh, Hebrew Bible. And you see in English, Biblia Hebraica. And then above that, you see some weird lettering. And I'll explain what that is in a moment. And on the side, on the spine, you have those same uh, three words in that, in that weird lettering. And those three Hebrew words, and you have to read them from right to left. So unlike the way we read from left to right, Hebrew is right to left. And from right to left, those words are Torah, and Navi'im and Ketuvim. And here's what they mean. Right on the cover, right on the spine of a Hebrew Bible containing those 39 books, they mean, first of all, that first word Torah means indeed law. And that second word, Navi'im, means prophets. And that third word, Ketuvim, means the writings. 
Jesus said, everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Again, I'll explain why Psalms versus writings in just a bit. So I say in your outline that the coming of Christ was predicted, and first of all, it was foretold in the law. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those comprise what's called the Torah, the law. And the very first of these promises of the coming of the Messiah comes at the very beginning of the Bible and at the very beginning of human history, after our first parents, Adam and Eve, representing us perfectly, they disobeyed God so that all of their offspring, you and me, become sinful. And this is why all of us were born with a sin nature, because we're like our parents going back to the beginning. And God assigns punishments to all the participants in this. The man, the woman, and the serpent, whom Satan used to tempt and to deceive them. And in addressing Satan, God gives the first word of hope after this calamity of the fall. Here's what God says. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. Now, this verse has been called for centuries the first gospel. Or the fancy Latin term is proto-evangelium. Proto, like in prototype, first. And then evangelium, evangel, gospel, good news. This is the very first good news after the entrance of sin. And it says that God's going to provide the answer to the problem of sin in the form of one that he's going to send into the human race. One who will be born into humanity and will crush evil. So the hopeful expectation is set at the beginning that a member of the human race will be the solution to sin. And God goes further and he says that this one who will come and will do this will do so through a particular line of humanity. As the story moves forward in the first book of your Bible, God calls a man named Abraham and he tells him that it's his line through whom this answer is going to come. And so God says to Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And from this point forward, the Bible follows the story of the descendants of Abraham. And so many times you have mentioned in the Old Testament Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The line is followed through Abraham, through his son Isaac, and through Isaac's son Jacob. So that when the New Testament begins with the arrival of Jesus, the very first line of the New Testament says this, the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the descendant of Abraham. It's telling you, it's telling us that this is the one who was promised going back to the beginning through the line that God said he would come through the line of Abraham. So the the solution will come through a human being who's a descendant of Abraham through his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. But it turns out Jacob then has 12 sons. (laughs) So where does the line go from there? And one of these sons is named Judah. And the first book of the Bible, back to Genesis again, says this. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet 
until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Eve is promised a man who will come who will be the answer. Abraham is told it will come through his line. And of the twelve sons of Jacob, whose name, by the way, is also Israel, so these are the twelve sons of Israel, the twelve tribes of Israel they become, of all of those sons, Judah will carry the line all the way to the chosen one, the Messiah. And it's not only in this first book of the law, the book of Genesis, that predicts all of these things, but others in the book of the law as well. The book of Numbers says a star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the enemies of his people. The fifth of the five books of the law, Deuteronomy, says the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that is Moses, from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. God says I will raise up for them a prophet like Moses and I will put my words in his mouth. So at the very beginning, God says, I'm going to send the good news, the solution to sin. That solution is going to come through a member of the human race, the seed of the woman. That's why it was so important for the New Testament to make very clear in identifying Jesus as the Messiah. Things like this in Galatians chapter 4. When the time, the set time had fully come, God sent his son, but notice, born of a woman. And so the Bible predicted Christ's coming. It was foretold in the law, but it was also foretold in that second of the three sections of the Old Testament, the prophets. And the section called the prophets included what are called the historical books that begin with the sixth book of the Old Testament, Joshua. And then the later prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Now remember that in the first part, that first section, we were told that the Messiah, the anointed one, is going to come through the line of Judah. And as the story moves forward, one of Judah's descendants is the famous King David. And he is promised in one of those books of the prophets, one of the historical books in particular, 2 Samuel, your house, David, and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And that's why when the New Testament begins in the book of Matthew in chapter 1, it connects not only Jesus with Abraham, but also now with David. So that verse I showed you earlier, the very first line of the New Testament, that says the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the descendant of Abraham. But here's what the full verse says. The genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the descendant of David, who was the descendant of Abraham. The Messiah was predicted to come through the line of David and would carry on David's throne forever. And the Bible says that he, the Messiah, it predicts he will be born in the city of David. That city is Bethlehem. Now, why is Bethlehem the city of David? Well, it's because Bethlehem is the city of David's ancestry. And the way that came about is because of a fascinating confluence of circumstances that God orchestrated in a story that's told in the tiny book of Ruth in your Bible. I don't have time to tell that entire story now. 
But it's about Ruth meeting and marrying a man from Bethlehem. And the book ends this way. Boaz, whom Ruth had married, was the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. So that becomes the city of David, the city of his ancestry. And that's why at the announcement of the birth of Jesus, the angel said, as we heard read earlier by Pastor Larry, today in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And Bethlehem was predicted hundreds of years prior to be the place to which the Messiah would come to be born. Micah, the prophet. Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Not only was the place of his birth predicted, but also the miraculous manner in which it would come about. Famously in Isaiah chapter 7, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel. Now, why will one of his titles be Emmanuel? 700 years later, after Isaiah said this, when this prophecy is fulfilled at the birth of Jesus, the Bible says, All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. As we just read, the virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew does this for us. He interprets what that title means. And he has, that's not my parenthesis, that's his. Matthew says, for those of you who don't know, that title means God with us. The Bible predicted Christ's coming. It was foretold in all three sections of the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, in the law and in the prophets, and then it was foretold in the writings. Now, Jesus said, everything that was written about me must be fulfilled in these three sections, the law, the prophets, and he said the Psalms. Now, why is that? Well, it's because there is this section of five books That begins with the Psalms, and among which Psalms is the largest book, but it's called, the whole collection is called the Writings. And that's that Hebrew word that was on the cover of the Hebrew Bible. So it's sometimes just represented by the largest and first book, the Psalms. Jesus was foretold in those as well. For example, the words that Jesus spoke on the cross were predicted nearly a thousand years earlier in Psalm number 22. Psalm 22 and verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that same psalm tells us what would happen as they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. The book of Psalms as well in Psalm number 2 says that this one who is going to come is going to be a king. The kings of the earth will rise up and rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. That means against the Messiah, the anointed one. That's what the word, the title Messiah means. That's the Hebrew word title for anointed one, Mashiach, Messiah. And the New Testament equivalent is Christ, Christos. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're not saying that's his first name and his last name. His name is Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's what the word Jesus means, God saves. 
His name is Jesus. His title is Christ, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. And the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord, against his Messiah, against his Christ. But you will break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like pottery. You see, friends, with all of this, like we sang earlier, all the promises have come true in Jesus. And so the Bible predicted Christ's coming. And I say in your outline that the Bible proclaims Christ's mission. Jesus teaches the two disciples from these three sections of the Old Testament, according to verse 27. Verse 27 says, He taught them all the scriptures concerning himself. And then back down in verse 44, he taught, he said, everything that's written about me. So it's concerning myself. It's about me. And the reason he emphasizes that, that everything concerning me, all the scriptures about me. The reason he's emphasizing that is because these two and others had failed to believe that all the Old Testament said about the Messiah would be fulfilled. They believed he would be a prophet and a king, but they failed to see that before his glory would come his suffering. So when Jesus explains all that the scriptures say about him, he's saying that all that the scriptures say about the Messiah, that he will be a prophet and a redeemer, that he would suffer, that he would die, that he would raise again and then rule. All of that is about me, about him, Jesus of Nazareth. And they believe that portion of what the Old Testament said about the Messiah That was about Jesus, the portion that said he would be a prophet and a king, but they didn't believe all of what the Old Testament said about the Messiah was found in Jesus. So, in other words, Jesus is not saying all the Old Testament is about me. Jesus is saying all of the Old Testament that is about the Messiah. And that's found in all the sections of the Old Testament. All of that is indeed about me. So he says to them in verse 26, verse 26, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? He's pointing out to them, did not the Old Testament predict my suffering? The prophet Isaiah, writing 700 years before Jesus, writes from the perspective of the future And so he uses the past tense when he says this in Isaiah 53. He, the Messiah, poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors because for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the sinful transgressors. The Bible predicted his suffering, like in Isaiah 53, but also his glory. The same prophet, Isaiah said, with righteousness he will judge the needy, and with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And of course, none of that can happen if he's still dead. If he suffers, as Isaiah chapter 53 says, will happen to the anointed one, and he dies, he is cut off, to use Old Testament language. Then how is all of this stuff supposed to happen? So the Old Testament predicted his resurrection as well. Psalm number 16, you, God, will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. So they, these two disciples and others, should not have been surprised that he's alive 
now after his suffering and death because of the Bible predicted. Predicted that very thing. Now that's some of what was foretold by God hundreds and thousands of years before it happened. It's just some of it. But what does that mean for us today? And that's what I have in the last point of your outline. The Bible predicted the coming of Christ. It proclaims his mission to come and suffer and die and raise. But the Bible also promises Christ's victory. That victory has already been secured by Christ. I have shown you in the past a number of times this passage from Colossians chapter 2 that talks about the work of Christ on the cross. Here's Here's what it says. Having disarmed the powers and authorities. That is, having disarmed Satan and his minions. Having disarmed them, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And when it says he made a public spectacle of them, the Greek phrase that's translated, making a public spectacle in English, that was used of a military general who had vanquished an enemy and he would parade the vanquished enemy before the city to embarrass them and to show that he had, he had won the victory. That's what the Bible is saying Christ did on the cross. You see a glimpse of this in the life and times of Jesus in the book of Matthew. As Jesus went about teaching and doing miraculous deeds to show that he is indeed the anointed one, the promised one. He's healing people. He's casting out demons from people. And in one such episode in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus encounters two men who are possessed by demons. And when Jesus approaches them, they say to him, what do you want with us, son of God? These demons talk to Jesus. What do you want with us? And they call him son of God. Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Think about that. These guys know the gig's up. They know that there is a time when the victory that Jesus has already achieved will then be finally fulfilled. And they know it's just a matter of time. But that time hasn't come yet. You haven't ascended back and returned like you promised you were going to do. And so we know it's not the time. So why are you torturing us now? One commentator said of these demons, they acknowledged That they knew there was a divinely appointed time not yet come when Jesus would indeed judge them and punish them with eternal damnation. Their theology was factually correct. As James, the book of James tells us, the demons believe and they shudder before God. They shudder because their belief is that of recognition but not acceptance. And they fully realize the consequence of rejecting God. It's been secured. The Bible teaches it, and the demons know it. And lastly, this victory will then be shared with Christ. What does it mean to us? This victory that Christ has achieved will be shared by all of his people in its final stage, the Bible teaches. 
going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and to the beginning of this message now. The very first passage that I showed you was that proto-evangelium, the first gospel, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. I left off a phrase in that. Here's what it, the full verse says. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. But then it says, and you, serpent, Satan, will strike his heel. That is, before the one who would come would crush the head of the serpent, the adversary, the devil, would achieve what appears to be a victory in, quote, striking his heel. He would indeed deal a blow, but it would be temporary and it's non-fatal. Yes, the Messiah, the Christ, would die. But in the very act that appeared to be Satan's greatest triumph, he was dealt his ultimate defeat. Because in the death of Jesus, he paid for our sins. And he showed himself completely obedient to the will of the Father, to the extent of even dying a cruel death for us. And so because of that, the Father raised him from the dead, and now death has been defeated And death can be taunted as it is in the Bible. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The Bible goes beyond that, all of that, and promises that Christ's people will not only be raised with him, but will one day rule and reign with him. Here's what the Bible says. God will crush Satan under your feet. And do you know who the your are? That's regular Christians. All those who belong to Jesus. He has crushed the head of the serpent. And because he has crushed the head of the serpent, Satan will be crushed under the feet of those who belong to Jesus, the Savior and King. And Paul, who wrote that, writes that in the midst, last chapter of the book of Romans, he writes that in the midst of false teaching that is is beguiling and creating difficulty for the Christians at Rome. And he's saying in the midst of all of the difficulty of the fall and all of the bombardment that Satan brings our way, remember this, it's all temporary because God has crushed the head of the serpent in Jesus, and he will crush Satan under your feet as well. Friends, the promises of the first coming have all come true. And so will all the promises of the second coming in like fashion. And so you may say, well, where is that, man? It's been 2,000 years, and Jesus said he's going to come again. It's been a long time. So why is it taking so long? Here's what the Bible says. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Instead, he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish. But everyone to come to repentance. You see, his timing is giving you time. He knows exactly when he's going to do this. But he has set it in the future to give ample time for everyone who is willing to repent. Why? Because he's not desirous that any should perish, but that all, everyone, should come to the repentance. And so he's given time. But just like all the promises of the first coming, 
have come true. So indeed, mark it, friends, according to the authority of the word of God, the the second coming promises will come true as well. And so on this Christmas, he invites you to come to him while there is time. And so I encourage you to realize that you, like me, like all of us, need what only Jesus can offer. Realize that you are a sinner in need of what the Messiah, the Christ, what we celebrate at Christmas did. Recognize that he did all that was promised in the first part of your Bible, centered on his death on the cross to pay for our sins. And then repent of your sins. You say to him, God, I'm going to go your way, not my way. I'm going to order my life according to your dictates, not mine. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. And you do that by when we bow our heads in just a moment and we pray, then you pray from your heart to God. And you acknowledge that I am a sinner and I believe that Jesus is the Savior. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the fulfillment of all that had been promised hundreds and thousands of years before. And I need that. I ask you to rescue me, to save me, to deliver me. The Bible says he or she who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's your take-home truth. Christmas reminds us that Jesus is the Christ, our crucified Savior, risen Lord, and coming King. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to be in your presence to sing praise to you for all that's represented by this time of year. Lord, then to focus our our minds upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who is what Christmas is all about. Christmas is about the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. We thank you for telling us in your word all that you had predicted and showing us that he is indeed who he claimed to be because he alone is the fulfillment of all of that. Thank you, Lord, for giving us time to then avail ourselves of the work that the Lord Jesus Christ did on our behalf. We thank you that we have this sacred time right now, and we ask you to move upon the hearts of those who may have never trusted you as personal Savior. I ask you, Lord, to call them to yourself. Help them to see their need as I had to do at age 19, as every person must do at a point in time in his or her life. And receive Jesus Christ as Savior and bow before him as Lord. Lord, we give this Christmas season to you because it is about you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.